Welcome to, to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank, I'm the associate pastor here, and if you're uh, new with us, please do stick around afterwards. We'd love the chance to connect. If you've been, it's been a while since we've last seen you, please do still stick around. If you are not new and you've been here for a long time, um, look around. There are new folks here. Be sure to greet them and welcome them after the service. And this morning at long last, we are at the end of our series on Deuteronomy. We have, con we have covered a lot of ground these last two weeks. Dr. Dave had four chapters last week, and this week I've got four chapters as well. And so I really encourage you to go back uh, and read through these last eight chapters since we won't have the time to sort of do a deep dive into these chapters. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapters 31 through 34, We'll be reading most of chapter 31 and then summarizing 32 and 33 along the way, uh, and then hitting the very end of 34. Do I need to slide off of the... No. Okay, great. <laughs> I think we need to pray. <laughs> so let's pray before we dive in. Father God, we thank you uh, for uh, this day, for your word, for... Um, fickle technology that helps us uh, and sometimes does weird things. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, look at your word, that you would direct our attention to it, that we would see your gospel at work, uh, even in the pages of your Old Testament, as they proclaim our need for a Savior and point us to our Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we think about uh, the end of Deuteronomy, we pray that you would help us see uh, our great need and your great saving grace and mercy in your son Jesus. So Lord, uh, help us uh, to be transformed by your, by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, legacy. Is a very loud tone in our ears. <laughs> so, um, legacy is important to just about everyone. We care because uh, we're invested in building, maintaining, and protecting our legacies. Whatever it is we're pouring our lives into, we will care deeply about how things will go after we're gone. And many of us have changed jobs over the last number of years, and uh, do you ever catch yourself wondering how things are going at your previous job or your previous school or wherever. Do you ever find yourself wondering how things are going, how they're doing without you? And Moses is really no different. In a lot of ways, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses's concern for his legacy. Remember the Israelites at this point in their history are camped on the Eastern shore of the Jordan River and they've been there for a whole year. They've been pre preparing to enter into the promised land and then to take it through conquest, which we went over in our series on Joshua last year. And at the same time, as they're preparing to enter into the, the promised land, they're also staring at the death of Moses uh, because they already know that he's not gonna be allowed to go with them into the promised land. And so everyone would have known that, you know, Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, signals a dramatic shift 
in the life of the people of God. And it's this shift that concerns Moses in these last four chapters. Naturally, he's thinking about who's going to step into his shoes after he's died. And he's also wondering how the people will do after he's gone. And so those are really the two big questions that we're going to sort of face in these four chapters uh, this morning. Who's up next and how will it go? And so let's dive into chapter 31, looking up at who's up next. And of course, we uh, have a lot to go over and it's a communion Sunday, so we don't have a lot of time. So buckle up. I talk fast. So uh, be prepared to sort of roll through these four chapters pretty quickly. So Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 1 through 8. Who's up next? So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in, and the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the king, kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will, he will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And he shall put them in possession of, them, of it. And it, will be, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, we know that Joshua is supposed to succeed Moses as the leader of Israel. But these verses don't really feel like Joshua is the one leading the people. After all, Joshua doesn't get addressed in any meaningful sort of way until the end of that whole section. Verse 7. It's not till verse 7 that we get the actual charge and commissioning of Joshua. So what comes before? Really, he's the last one to get the charge um, from Moses about life after Moses. Even the people receive a charge before, before Joshua does. And it's really essentially the same charge that Joshua gets. And so really the charge goes first to the people and then to Joshua. That's verses 5 and 6. But don't we know that Joshua is going to be the next leader? After all, the next, ver the next book in the Bible is named Joshua, after all, right? And yet in verse 3, what do we see? We see that it is the Lord your God himself who goes before you. That leads the way. It's the Lord who destroys Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. It is the Lord who will go over, all, go over and give over to them that all the giants and the heavily armed and trained and fortified peoples of the land to the Israelites. And so God is the true leader and has always been the true leader. Think about the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Israel, out of the, uh, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It wasn't Moses who did that, though he was the one talking to uh, Pharaoh and through whom many wonders was, were performed. But it is, of course, God who is the one that delivers them. It's God who leads them. And before you roll your eyes at me, because yes, God, uh, yes, Frank, 
Of course it's God who leads them. We're in church, right? Of course it's God. It's important to say that the people were transitioning from a sort of more mediated relationship with God to more of a direct one, right? While Joshua plays a big role in mediating between God and the people and leading them, he's not really characterized as one who is like Moses. He's more of a general than he is sort of this prophet leader. And Deuteronomy really ends with this. We'll sort of get to this at the end of the sermon in chapter 34. Deuteronomy ends by telling us that there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And by the time we get to the judges, it's we have much more of a sort of direct theocracy with the people answering and being ruled by God without a sort of singular leader figure like Moses. But it's not just God in the abstract, which brings us to verses 9 through 13, which is that next section in chapter 31. Listen closely. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord, of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of a release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before, your, before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And so Moses' legacy isn't really seen in the leadership that he's cultivated over the years. It's not seen in the elders that he's raised up. It's not seen in Joshua, whom he has groomed to take over for him. Rather, Moses' legacy is the word that he has written down that has been given to him by God. It is to be the word that stands throughout the generations as a guiding light to the people, not the man who happens to be in charge at the time. The people weren't to look to a singular godly figure to lead them in faithfulness. Rather, each person was to be a person of the word. The whole nation was to be comprised of people who soaked in the, the word regularly. Can you imagine the whole nation getting together every seven years to listen to the Bible? What a glorious time it would have been. And thus, through the unchanging and perfect word of God, righteousness will always lead. While human leaders are sinful, God's covenant people are different because they are not led by people. They are led by the covenant. These are people whose lives were to be about the book of the covenant. And so that's pretty easy and straightforward. Joshua is up next, but really it's God, and really it's God through the word. But how will things go after? Well, that's verse, let's read verses 16 to 29. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. 
And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and fat, and they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into this land that I swore to to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, um, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the way and the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Well, how's it going to go? Not well. Short answer, things are going to go very poorly. Even before they set foot in the promised land, the Lord knows that they're going to turn from him and break the covenant. And we've talked at length about this, about the wickedness and the faithlessness of the Israelites. Feel free to go back and listen to the end of our sermon series in Joshua. Or if you want to go back to that whole year that we spent in Jeremiah, where it was just doom and gloom all day, every day. It was really rough for a whole year. Feel free to go back and to listen to those sermons, right? We know how this is going to go. But I think for us this morning, it's important to see the parallels that we have with these people. To, rem- to realize that we're standing here not as righteous covenant keepers, scoffing at those dumb Israelites who are covenant breakers, but rather we are right there with them as sinful and faithless people. Even now, We are sinful, faithless people. Remember, at this point in their life, in Deuteronomy, these people were faithful. Faithful. They had pledged to obey God's command to take the promised land. They knew that they had to depend on the Lord to win them the victory. And they've spent the last 40 plus years depending on him day in and day out, not only for food, but also for safety. And they know that when they go into the promised land, it's going to be no different that they're going to have to live by faith and rest by faith as well. And if we were there right now with them, we would say that they're doing pretty well, that they are faithful people. 
And yet Moses and God know that their hearts are wicked and sinful. What incredible words in verse 27. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Friends, that's us. This is the state of our human heart. It is rebellious and stubborn, perhaps reigned in for a time, but if set loose, will not fail to turn from the Lord. Look at the folks who walk away from the faith. We could start with the disciples. Those disciples, those pillars of faith, what did they do? They deserted, betrayed, and denied our Lord Jesus. They too were committed, faithful, and zealous, and yet they fled. And what did they do when they heard that the Lord say that they were going to turn away from him? They protested, Lord, not I. I will go unto death with you. We saw how that worked. And if you don't want to look at the disciples, we could look at a more recent picture. We could look at any of the number of high-profile Christian celebrities from musicians and pastors who have who we once looked up to for their faith, that have deconverted and denied Christ. We would never dream of doing that, and yet, every few years we have a discipline case that leads to excommunication. If you want to look at the local church, look at us. You see, excommunication rarely happens because of the sin that initially started the process. Excommunication happens because we are unrepentant in our sin, that we are unable to see our sin and say, no, I am not like that. And so we refuse to repent, despite what everyone else says. And so for us, it would be horrifying to think that in just a few months from now, we might be that person that turns from the Lord in in unrepentance. But yet that is us. Every few years, we come across that very scenario. And so let's not fool ourselves. We're just as capable of holding on to our sin as anyone else. And thus, it would be a mistake to keep these words about the Israelites at arm's length. It would be a mistake to think that we're not just like these Israelites. It would be a mistake to think that your faith is stronger than this. Because while we absolutely can have confidence and assurance in our salvation, it's an easy step to be complacent in our faith, to take it for granted, to presume upon God's great goodness, to not really go through the the hard work of true repentance. You see, when we get comfortable with our lives, when we get comfortable with our socially acceptable sins, when we get comfortable with our faith, we subtly shift from depending on God to depending on ourselves. We say that the gospel is 100% God and 0% you. That it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But how easy it is for us to take, you know, one-tenth of one percent. To say that it's really, to say we're really trusting in the Lord God for all things, but to really trust in yourself just a little bit. But the problem is that when we trust in ourselves just a little bit, it's not one-tenth of one percent. 
trusting in myself and trusting the Lord for the rest of it. Rather, it's all on me then. It's all me and no God. Because when we trust ourselves for something, we don't trust God at all. That's where idolatry starts and flourishes. In the darkness of our heart, stubbornly and rebelliously justifying its, itself so that it feels right. And so this morning, my upright, good Christian friends, we stand with the people of God hearing that our hearts are wicked. This is why Moses calls four witnesses in chapter 31. These witnesses were to stand both for and against the people. They were to bear testimony not only to our wickedness, but also to the goodness of God and to call us back to what is true. One witness is the law itself. That's verse 26. The book of the law was to, set, to be set next to the Ark of the Covenant. It was to stay there as a repository of God's word, a guard against the faithlessness of the people. And this witness is most famously seen in the rediscovery of the law by King Josiah in, I think it's 2 Kings. And at that time, generation after generation had lived without knowing God's word, demonstrating how far afield the people had gone. And when the word was read in the presence of the king, Josiah tore his robes and wept because of its witness against the people. Another of the witnesses are the heavens and the earth. Like Luke 19, when the stones cry out in praise of Jesus, and Romans 8, where the creation groans under subjection due to sin, those verses come to mind about the witness that the creation has. And the creation reminds us that we are not the creator, but rather the creature, that God is God and we are not. And then there's that song that we hear about. Twice it's called to provide a witness. This song was to become like Christmas songs are today, where unbelievers and believers alike sing God's praises. And the hypocrisy between singing about earth receiving her king and the lifestyle of sinfulness in some of our, the, the singers is meant to be a witness against sinners. On Judgment Day, the Lord will say something like, but you sang about it. Why didn't you respond to it? Come on, man. Like, I'm telling you who I am and what I have done for you in these songs that you sing over and over again that you love, and yet you don't get it. And that's what we get in chapter 32, which is the Song of Moses. There, the Song of Moses laid out all the good, the blessing, the justice, and faithfulness that the Lord had lavished upon the people. It makes clear that the Lord held up his end of the covenant. But then it turns, of course. And the song then sings of the foolishness and senselessness of the people who have repaid God's goodness with contempt and evil. It's a horrifying picture of sinfulness made all the more horrifying in, in that we know that these prophecies come true. It's a picture of Israel's descent into sin to the point that the worst covenant curse is invoked, that of exile. And so do you see what the song bears witness to? Nothing less than the whole sweep of the Old Testament. Because from here on out, it's downhill. Through the judges, the kings, and the period of the prophets, the wickedness of God's people increases. The oppressors come in as a manifestation of the covenant curses, and it's all the people's fault. 
And yet the Lord doesn't end the song with our wickedness and our exile. But it ends with a note of deliverance, of the Lord coming to cleanse his people's lands and to bring vengeance. It ends with the Lord returning to fight against Israel's enemies to cleanse the land and to bring about a return. And so how does it go? It goes poorly, sinfully, wickedly. And yet our only hope is the grace of God, that God will be faithful when we are not. I've said a number of times that the Lord shows us our sin and makes a big deal about it, but he never leaves us in it. The gospel always moves us. We, we believe in a gospel of transition, a gospel of transformation, a gospel of movement. And that's seen in chapters 33 and 34. You see, chapter 33 comes hot on the heels of this song of wickedness and condemnation, of witness against the people. And what is chapter 33? And there your subheadings will help you, right? It is Moses blessing by name every single one of the tribes of Israel. Think about that. He's just finished the song where he's singing about infidelity and faithlessness and wickedness and destruction. And in the very next breath, he says, I love you and I will take care of you. And then in verse, and then in chapter 34, we get the end of Moses in Deuteronomy. Listen to verses 9 through 12 of chapter 34. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And the words I want to highlight are in verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses' legacy is a big one for the people of Israel. He's the greatest of all time for them. The shoes that he left had to be filled, but they were never adequately filled. He is the one that the people of Israel will look back on and say, he was the best of us. And why? because he knew the Lord face to face. But these verses aren't just to honor Moses, but also as yet another witness against the people. Because where did the best of us end up? Where did the best of us end up? Where does he die? He dies in the wilderness because of his sin. And so the best of us isn't allowed into the promised land, into the rest of the Lord. That's the testimony of chapters 31 through 34 of Hebrews and also of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. The most righteous, the most faithful, the one with the best and most intimate relationship with God that we have ever seen and will ever see doesn't make it. It's not enough. You see, the two questions surrounding Moses' legacy point us to the desperate need of the people. Who could possibly be better than Moses? Who can we put our trust in? Who will keep us from the apostasy and sinfulness that our hearts gravitate toward? Who will save us and keep us? 
The answer, of course, is Jesus. It was Jesus back then, and it is Jesus now. Remember who was supposed to, what was supposed to guide the people? It was the word. And who's the word? Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh. And so let's take a moment to think about how Jesus is not only better than Moses, but gives, he's the one who gives us exactly what we so desperately need. So Jesus doesn't just know God face to face. He is God. And he is currently at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. And it's not just that he's talking to him face to face, right? But that he is one with God and that we get to be united to him and so that we get God himself. And Jesus is the perfect one who keeps the law perfectly. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we were, and yet he was without sin. And Jesus isn't just worthy to enter into God's rest like Moses is not. But while he is there, he's preparing a place for us too. Where Moses couldn't even bring himself into God's rest, Jesus is bringing all that he has been given. He's, he's bringing in you and he's bringing in me. And so what about our hearts? What about those stubborn and rebellious hearts? Well, we could go a number of different ways with this one. We could go, we could talk about how we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives within us. We could go the theological route and talk about substitutionary atonement and how he takes all that we have and we get all that he has. And we could go to Ezekiel 36, where God says that he will put in you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, but I prefer this one. The gospel turns, for me, on my union with Christ. I am cleansed by the blood and made one with him. And all that stubbornness and rebellion is changed, not because of what I have done, but because I am with him. Friends, Jesus changes everything. He changes our whole outlook that we don't have a legacy like the Israelites have in the Old Testament, but we have a legacy like in the New Testament, a legacy of hope and a legacy of righteousness. As we look back on the sweep of Deuteronomy, we are confronted with this question of legacy. Whose legacy are we building? Are we building our own or are we building Christ's? And I had a seminary professor that once said that we ought to care not at all about our legacy. Why? Because when we think about our legacy, it's selfish and self-oriented. And that's true. When we're concerned about our legacy, it's always about us, about the way things will reflect upon us, about our reputation, about our fame, or whatever. But there's only one way to build a legacy to care deeply about it and yet not be selfish and self-centered. And that's by building a legacy of Christ's likeness, to have a legacy that points not to me, but to the word. To be known not for my excellence or my brilliance, but rather for my faithfulness to the Lord, to the word made flesh. And let me end with a story that will help flesh this out for us. Um, I had once the privilege to speak to a team of young adults that had gone into a remote jungle village of Cambodia to see the work that World Relief or some other Christian organization had done with these people. 
And while I can't remember either the name of the organization or what they were doing, it was clear, clear that in the years prior to this group of young adults arriving to sort of talk to the villagers and see what this organization had done, it was clear that the work had had a big impact. And at one particular village, the team had an opportunity to speak to a villager about what things were like prior to the arrival of this Christian organization. And the man was overjoyed and delighted to, to talk about all the positive changes that had happened. But there was only one problem. This villager was like me, and he couldn't remember the name of the organization that was helping him. Right? He, hadn't, he just like couldn't remember. And so instead of racking his brain for the name or asking the organizational rep who was standing right there, he seamlessly and happily substituted the name of Jesus. When Jesus arrived, things changed. When Jesus arrived, things got better. And when Jesus did these things for us, we were amazed and we are so grateful. And you can imagine the, the, the organizational rep standing right there and rejoicing and praising God that they did not remember the name of the organization, but they remembered the name of Jesus. And so let us find ourselves rooted and grounded in the word made flesh, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us faithfully give a witness to the goodness and grace of Jesus to sinners like us. And let us build a legacy of Christ that he might be glorified in all that we do and say. And one of those ways that we might help build a legacy of Christ and not of us is through this table. This table that is set before us where we proclaim the Lord's death and our dependence on him for our salvation and for everything. When we come to this table, we say without a shadow of a doubt that this is not about me, but it is about him. And so let us prepare to come and be changed by Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is living and active, that changes us. And that has come among us to be one of us and to be crucified for us. Lord, would we be people of the word and let us be people of your son. Lord, help us, for we are stubborn and rebellious people. Our hearts uh, turn away from you at every chance. But Lord, you have promised to give us a new heart, to change us by your son. And so, Lord, that is what we hope in. That is what we need. And so, Lord, as we come to your table, remind us of those great truths of the gospel, that we are made new through the blood of your Son. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.